0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 145 with Jeff DeGraff. You're going to walk away learning one, the extraordinary value of arguing. 2. Who are the four types of people at the workplace and what creative tensions emerge among them? And 3. Effective ways to create constructive conflict at work. So, if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we reference here, you can find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com/ep145. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out some of our handy resources from the 10 days to winning at work email course which is all about slashing through the waste in your work week to get more done or just go home earlier, and the gold nugget email list, which summarizes the wisdom of each guest in a quick email you can read in under two minutes in the morning. Here's Jeff's story. Jeff DeGraff is called the Dean of Innovation because of his influence on the field. Dr. DeGraff is a professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. He has advised hundreds of the world's most prominent firms. He has founded a leading innovation institute called the Innovatrium with labs in Ann Arbor and Atlanta. Jeff's thoughts on innovation are covered by Fortune, Wired, and the Harvard Business Review, to name a few. Jeff writes a column for Inc. Magazine and has a regular segment on public radio called The Next Idea. He's the author of several books. Here's Jeff. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast.
1: Thanks for having me on, Pete. I appreciate it.
0: Oh, well, I've been so looking forward to this. Now, you have one of the coolest nicknames around, the Dean of Innovation, (laughs) which is so fun. I want one like it. Tell us sort of who first called you that and what was the story behind it?
1: Well, I guess if you live long enough, right? If you've been in the (laughs) field long enough. Well, when I was very young, I graduated very early. I was a very young man and I had a PhD in artificial intelligence or what artificial intelligence was back in the day. And I turned down a position at an Ivy League school to work for a man who had been uh, chapter 11 two years earlier I was one of the seven executives that built Domino's Pizza no kidding and yeah and because I was kind of the first person who had an advanced degree they called me the dean of innovation and it wasn't always in a really uh, in a in a genuine way it was kind of a mocking way but of course over the years it stuck And then when I decided to return to being a professor, I think I was all of 29 when I came back to the academy, you know, it kind of stuck. And back in the old days, you know, there really wasn't a lot of people who taught uh, innovation and creativity. There was certainly Michael Ray at Stanford and and maybe a couple others, but I was one of the early ones. So I think it kind of stuck and I got very, very lucky that so many of my students went on to be these really well-known innovators. So that's kind of how it happened.
0: Oh, that really is cool. And I've skimmed the autobiography of James Monahan, which is the founder, right, of Domino's? Tom Monahan. That's Tom correct. Monahan. excuse me. And so tell me, were there any noteworthy innovations that you brought to bear at Domino's?
1: Well, three of them, I can tell you right off the bat. We built something called the Team Member Workbench. And if you read a book called The Domino's Method, what's interesting about it is it looks exactly like Facebook. And it was built in 1985 with HyperCard. We worked on something called AppleNet, which became a distributed data processing system, one of the first ones. It then became called something called Connect, and it then became called something called iTunes. No kidding. And I worked on something called Pass, which, of course, was a regional sports network for uh, the Detroit Tigers and others. And it became one of the five or six struts that were absorbed into ESPN. So this is very early on in the 1980s. You couldn't buy a franchise at Domino's. And you had to work for it. So we had a system called the Management and Training Program. We called it MIT, thinking we were being very clever. <laughs> and uh, you had to work for a franchise. But basically, we fronted you the money and we gave you the money for your first store. And that's why we grew at almost 300% a year for the years I was there. And the last thing I did was we put the company in order and sold it to Bain Capital and signed the paper with uh, Mitt Romney, who ran Bain Capital at the time.
0: Oh, that's great. Well, I am a Bain alum myself, and I've been pretty impressed with Mitt Romney and the lore associated with him and Bain. It's like...
1: So you see how it all crosses, Yeah. uh, We were just about to fold. Uh Yeah, you know, if you're in the right place at the right time, and that's really what that was. I'd love to tell you how clever we were, but we were very out there. You know, food companies don't do things like that. And I think that's what brought the interest of the University of Michigan and all the stuff that we had done kind of up the road here.
0: Well, yeah, and I do want to ask a bit about that. So what is the story behind the Innovatrium and what goes on there today?
1: Well, I had been at Michigan for probably a decade. And the good news is we had had some pretty good students here. People like Larry Page (laughs) had come out of this program and, you know, they'd gone off into pretty doggone well, right? right? And so what happened was the lecture halls become bigger and bigger and bigger And your impact becomes less and less and less. It becomes abstract. You're talking about how to build things to a hall of 180 kids or 100, I guess they're, you know, they're not that young, but 180 MBAs. And it really struck me that they weren't really learning the trade. The way I learned about business, like I said, was building one really pretty much from the ground up. And so we had a dean at the time who had asked me to take some associate deans around and show them some of the work I had done at places that are now kind of well-known as design firms and big firms that have design parts to them. And when it came time to put up the money, you know, the school said, well, we're not really sure we want to do that. But the team was terrific. And he said, if you've got the money, you know, and I'd made a little money, why don't you do it yourself? So along with Dick Hayworth of the Hayworth Company, an amazing man, amazing company, we acquired the rights to the bank across the street And we tore the front off the bank and we tore the top off of it. And I gave keys to the seven coolest professors on campus and said, just come and do your creative work here. We're not going to do normal work. And of course, what happens is they bring their best students who are just brilliant. You know, us old guys, you know, yeah, we still got a little game, but it's the young guys who have all the ambition, you know, they're young, annoying people. And so all the great clubs started there, all the other faculty. In fact, one of the original faculty, I did this with Thomas Abrukin, and you might know the name. He's the head of NASA now. Oh, fantastic. So it became doing the creative work that the organization couldn't, but never, ever against the organization. So we started a lot of projects there, and brought them across the street back into the organization. And that's how this whole kind of ecosystem started. And then that's how it started in Atlanta and what we're doing in Detroit and all these other places. That's how the whole thing began.
0: Oh, that is so exciting. And so I'm curious to dig into some of your actionable wisdom for professionals here. And you've got a bit of that covered in your book, The Innovation Code. Can you give us the big idea behind this one?
1: Yeah. One of the things that strikes me is I'm coming up on 3 million miles for traveling. So I spend a lot of time all over the planet. And one of the things that always strikes me is of all of the things that people talk about innovation, which incidentally, we could talk about this, most of them are wrong. All right. You know, I also study this and I also have this index that we run here. A lot of our assumptions are wrong, but the one thing that we see over and over and over again is diversity. And the real question becomes why? Why is diversity such a key component? Now, whether you're reading Richard Florida's wonderful work, he's at the University of Toronto now, Michael Tushman's work over at Harvard, you know, all of us see the same thing. And the answer is pretty simple. It's because innovation is not born from alignment. All right. It's born from constructive conflict. And I, constructive is the key word here. I want you to think about the gridlock in Washington and how destructive and how toxic that is. Now, I want you to think about what happens when people are deep and diverse domain experts who don't agree, but are working towards a shared vision. And there are about 30 places on the planet that produce almost all of the intellectual property that creates our GDP, our innovation going forward. And what they have in common is this form of conflict. And I think one of the things that we've forgotten how to do is how to have a good argument, how to have a good discussion, disputation, as the old Jesuits used to call it, right? And I think what happens is we've turned into places with trigger words and safe places, <laughs> and we never, and we have social media. And if people don't agree with us, all the same crap that we believe, we unfriend them, people. Yes. I mean, the Spanish Inquisition couldn't have thought of this. I mean, so we never encounter the other. And what happens is we never get the hybrid idea, right? And if you think about whether it's the space program or whether it's you know how we created all these amazing breakthroughs, and it's not just America, all over the planet, it happens this way. And this is historically true, whether it's the Roman Empire or the Song Dynasty or the Florentine Renaissance or New York in 1900 or Shanghai in 2000, what you see is it's yeasty. It's Mm. bubbling, right? And you can feel it. And that's why these little cities, I live in this tiny city of Ann Arbor that has more venture capital per person than any city in the world right now. But if you look at Ann Arbor and you look at it against all the cities within like a 50-mile radius, it looks very different. And this is going to be the key. So how do we do this in our organizations? How do we do this? How do we have that fight without being dysfunctional? How do we put these different groups together? What are the practices? And more importantly, what are the predictable outcomes? That's what the book is about and how to do it.
0: Well, I love it. I'm hooked and I want to know sort of all about it right now. So can you give us some of those key principles in having that constructive conflict? I think you're right. You know, the safe spaces, the trigger words, that stuff. I see this a lot in terms of there is almost like a fear in the room to say anything that is contrary to what has just been said. And particularly if it was a more senior leader who just said that thing. So how do you begin to make that? Yeah, make that shift.
1: Absolutely. Let me give you two ways to think about this. The first is I divide the world into four types. Now, this is not a Myers-Briggs test or a brain dominance test. This actually starts started with my research on trying to predict share prices. I noticed in 1993 that out of the seven major indexes for innovation, not a single one beat the Russell 3000. Hmm. And I've been tracking this since. Do you know that out of all the major innovation indexes, none have ever beaten the growth benchmark ever? So I started looking at, tell me what goes on in organizations in terms of their types. What C.K. Prahlad, one of the guys who brought me to Michigan, of course, the most famous innovation strategist of the 20th century, called Dominant Logic. Mm -hmm. There are four dominant logics. The first one is what I'm going to call create dominant logic. I want you to think of Steve Jobs. When I was really young, I got to be an advisor to Steve. I want you to think about that kind of wild-eyed pistol-waving, take a big chance, Walt Disney, Arthur Levinson at Genentech. I want you to think about those guys who are absolutely visionary, but also high risk, and most of those companies don't make it. I want you to think of that organization. Okay. Startups, because they can't compete in scope and scale, right? You know, biotech. And remember, every organization has these people in them, right? Then I want you to think of the opposite, kind of that engineer archetype, right? The process person, you know, the scientist, the engineer puts all the pieces together. This is McDonald's, right, where some illiterate kid presses a cheeseburger button, and simultaneously somebody shoots a cow in Argentina, bang, and everything (laughs) in between happens, right? You get cheeseburgers for, oh, come (laughs) on, that's where cheeseburger comes from. And I want you to think about how one of these really produces radical organic growth, meaning speculating new markets. The other produces breakthrough innovation, and the other produces quality and efficiency at scale. And I want you to think about how these two in your meetings fight all the time, sort of Mm -hmm. the artist, and the engineer and a death grip. And sometimes one wins and if they win, the organization kind of becomes, you know, hampered. It's like having one real strong arm and one weak one. But when they go together, you start seeing companies that begin to scale. So it can happen either way. This can be Apple at one end, right? It can be Toyota at the other end. But the notion is you'll see these two together. And these two create the first dynamic of how much innovation do we want? Do we want radical with risk? Do we want incremental with no risk? It's scalable. Can we get something better? Let me give you a good metaphor that people can hang on to, your listeners. I want you to think about Lennon and McCartney, All the right. Beatles, John Lennon, you know, think of my name, was any more whack than John Lennon, mm. right? And was anybody more tightly wrapped than Paul McCartney? And these two together created some of the greatest music, I think, of, of my generation at least. And I want you to think of the other two archetypes. I want you to think of that kind of classic business person. Think of Jack Welch, right, GE. I've been an advisor to GE forever. And I want you to think about, you know, that hard-charging, show-the-money quarterly results, the athlete, you know, the Marine, that person. They're held together by goals. These are boomers. These are people my age, Pete, right? We still grade on a curve here at Ross at Michigan, right? Mm -hmm. You know, don't send your ducks to Eagle school, right? And on the other side, I want you to think about our children, these collaborators, these kind of sages, these kind of socially aware people who are held together by their values, And I want you to think about the kind of tension and you see this in elections and you see this in the conversation between boomers and millennials. Boomers are all about, you know, we got to win this and millennials are about, well, we've, we've got to learn to live together. And this is the conversation between finance and, you know, HR in your organization. Now, typically, this is the issue of how fast we're going to move. Typically, these two sets of oppositions are things we try to avoid, but actually they're producing the generative power to create hybrids to create new things. And so I was very lucky to be at the beginning of Domino's or at Apple but you know a couple times when they were sort of you know closing down and then starting back up again. I want you to think about you know whether it's Lennon and McCartney with kind of this artist and engineer whether it's Ben and Jerry when it's kind of this athlete and this kind of sage. I want you to think that in your organization there are these players. And the issue becomes how do you know which player to use at which time and how do you put them together in such a way that they don't destroy things and there's some simple steps for that number 1 assemble of diversity of perspectives one of the things i come in and do all the time is you see an organization that's brilliant at one thing and they've destroyed the opposite and they just simply can't start again and i've been at about half the fortune 500 so the issue becomes how do you change the gene pool if you will Mm -hmm. Right. So you got to mix it up like a good dinner party. Next, you got to engage the conflict. You can't avoid the fight and you want to make sure that the fight is purposeful. It's respectful, but it's real back and forth. This is one thing we could learn from universities. There isn't a faculty meeting I've ever been in that was nice and smooth. You know, (laughs) there's always somebody who thinks what you've done is stupid. And a lot of times they're right. You have to establish a shared goal or vision between these sort of parties that are intense and finally, the most important thing is you have to work to construct hybrid solutions. You have to create something that's new, a third way, a different way. And that's how it works. So look at what you've got. Make sure that you've got enough balance in there. Make sure that you're putting these opposites together and make sure that they're going the same place. And finally, make sure they're producing something in a nutshell And of course, how to do it is what the book is all about. And there's a ton of how-tos and bullet points and methods and all the kind of stuff that I think readers want to hear. They want to be able to do this in their own place and examples of what companies do. But basically, that's the long and short of it.
0: Oh, that is powerful and exciting. And thank you. And I have so many follow-ups that I'll try to organize a bit here. So... (laughs) Okay, so you mentioned these four sets of archetypes and sort of two pairings that create some conflict and some generative power. And so let's see, the first one, the Steve Jobs risky type, and then the process engineer person. So can I recap, what are the names you give to each of these four?
1: Well, I call the forward position, let's call them the create type or the artist. So have your listeners think of Larry Page or Elon Musk, right? Got it. Then I want you to think about the opposite, the engineer Engineer. or the control type. I want you to think of like Michael Bloomberg, who I love, or Warren Buffett. You know, these guys are kind of, you know, they're technocrats, right? That's the first tension. Imagine those people being in the same room together, (laughs) right? They're brilliant. They're all brilliant. But the notion is, and one is going to be better than the other, depending on what you're trying to do. If you're a biotech, you want to have Elon Musk in your room. And if you're trying to make a Ford automobiles, you want to have Michael Bloomberg in your room. And of course, when you're working on this, Pete, during any given time, somebody's going to be better at one part of the whole process. So the people who are better at the beginning is the artist because they like ambiguity and freedom and they're very divergent. But at the end, it's going to be the engineer because the engineer is going to be much better at putting things together, complexity, scalability, et cetera.
0: Okay, very good. And now for the second set, we got the Jack Welch marine types and the children collaborator types. What do you call yeah, those? Yeah,
1: the Jack Welch is the compete type or the athlete. And, and I want you to think about you know Jack or think about Indra Nui over at PepsiCo. I mean, these are kind of hard chargers. Remember, women can be these archetypes too. Certainly. And they show up everywhere along the world. This isn't just a male-dominated world. And this is boomers. And then I want you to think about the opposite, which is called the collaborate type or the sage type. And I want you to think about millennials or Jack Ma over at Alibaba, or think about Jeffrey Canada over at the Harlem Children's Zone or Jimmy Wales at Wikipedia. I mean, I want you to think about people who are community builders. And I want you to think about that tension, right? And according to the Pew Charitable Trust, the generation gap between my generation and my children is the largest of any generation they've ever measured. Oh, that makes sense. So this challenge between goals and values is a big one.
0: Oh, that's so good. Well, you know, you mentioned this is distinct from Myers-Briggs and brain dominance. And although I can't help it as a Myers-Briggs practitioner myself, I'm thinking artist sounds like N, intuition. Engineer sounds like S, sensing.
1: Absolutely. And you're so right. You can map these, but here's what I need your listeners to understand. The way this actually started was backwards. The way it started was I started looking at, could I beat these innovation indexes and beat the Russell 3000? Could I actually create... Technical financial outcomes for each of these? Could I predict value? And the answer was I only lost to the Russell two years ever since 1993. Now, the second thing became then looking at what organizational cultures, and this is the other one competencies. Just because you're a type doesn't mean you're any good at it. Right. Right. So we looked at those and we started looking at a very large database of organizations. And this is where you're doing a different kind of assessment. This is sounding a little technical, but you're doing what's called sociometric assessments, which means it's kind of right, but you can't prove it. It's like consumer confidence, things like that. And then we started looking at what kind of leaders produce these types of cultures. So I want you to think of them, Pete, like Russian nesting dolls. The littlest doll is you, the leader. The bigger doll is your organization, which has culture and competency. And the largest doll is the market where you're producing particular types of value. And that's what this is.
0: Oh, so much. I want to make sure I hit the point for our investors (laughs) in the crowd. How do we invest in the basket of companies that you're into that outperforms the Russell?
1: Well, one of the things I think we're going to do is to produce a general ranking when the book comes out in July. I think it comes out actually in early August. We're trying to do that, whether we meet that deadline or not what all the individual pieces are, the general pieces we're going to give away, the individual pieces you can imagine are going to financial investment firms. But the general stuff will be out in a ranking. And it's too complicated to do on the radio, you know, in 45 minutes. But basically, there are analog metrics that go to all of these.
0: All right, so with the book and the rankings, we can get a rough sense. You know, we're not gonna weight the portfolio in all kinds of precise ways. You got it. But you, we could say you got it. Top five, okay. It's in the mix. Cool. So now I wanna dig a little deeper here. Yeah. When you talk about engage the fight I think that's the part that might seem just sort of the most countercultural, and like if we've got sort of a lone ranger sort of professional who's like, I'm so inspired by what Jeff said, I'm just gonna go there today. You know, they might find themselves just like people are shocked and awed and appalled at sort of what they're doing in the meeting. How do you begin to get folks on board with this kind of a shift so that people are comfortable or I guess okay being uncomfortable engaging in the fight?
1: I hate to put it this way, you know, I sign everything. If anybody's ever received an email from me, it says vision, courage, freedom. Innovation is a form of deviance. It's a form of positive deviance. It's a form of useful novelty. But deviance is created by deviance, right? right. You hear the inflection change here. If you're really going to be an innovator, you have to have courage. And I have to tell you, your listeners this, no one will ever love you it really isn't that kind of a game. Everything in an organization is designed to maintain its equilibrium, right? Growth is a secondary idea. So the only time people really, think about this, think of it this way. If your listeners think of it this way, when do people really change? They really change when their life sucks. (laughs) Their life sucks. They're in a crisis. They're divorced. They lose the job. They lose the house. They go bankrupt, whatever. They get a bad health diagnosis. They change when their life sucks because the risk of trying something radical and the reward of staying where you are at is reversed at that end of the bell curve. The other end time that they change is when they're on a roll. They get married, they have kids, they got a promotion. Same thing. Right? That's what risk capital is. So the thing that you have to understand, right, if the bad is innovation doesn't happen from the inside out. It happens from the outside in. Right? It happens at the edges of the bell curve and moves to the middle. And at the edges of the bell curve is this whole idea that things are variant. Right. That things are not normative by definition. So when you start to innovate, you don't want to innovate in the middle. The organization is designed to crush you. Going back to my innovatrium example, Mm -hmm. you build it across the street. You know, Coke Zero. How we did that was we had to hide it. You know, if you think about a lot of these innovations I've been associated with, how you build them is you you have to start off Broadway because everyone's going to be critical. Now, the second thing is you have to have courage. You have to have courage to have a voice. And if you don't have the courage to have a voice, I hate to tell you, it's never gonna happen for you because people are gonna kind of whip on you. And that happens. I was telling you earlier, one of the guys that I started the room with, this uh, Thomas Abruken, who's now the head of NASA, you know, one of the things that I always loved about him was somebody's gotta say, I think this isn't working and we have to try something different. Now, the good news is what? The good news is once you start getting momentum, You start things off-Broadway, you proof the concept, you try things. When things begin to get momentum, you bring them back into the group. So when you're trying to engage in the conflict, you have to find people who don't agree but have mutual respect and open-mindedness and are empathetic to each other. Now, the good news is every organization, Pete, has some of these people. And if you don't have any of these people, right, innovation is the least of your problems. Right.
0: Okay. Understood. So having that distance, the off-Broadway, sort of the across-the-street the separation, that's good. And then you prove some momentum, and hopefully you've got some sponsorship from on high. That yeah, there's always a sugar daddy. Yeah.
1: And a lot of times they're hiding in plain sight. You know, and it's wonderful because a lot of times the person who got to the top, what they're really frustrated with is they're not in the game anymore. They want to take some shots. So it's sometimes good to give them the ball, let them take a few shots.
0: Oh, very good. I like that. And so when we talk about courage, now, I guess, I'm curious, is your experience with folks a little bit of, hey, either you got it or you don't? Or do you have some tactics, some mindset, some growth approaches to step into that?
1: Two things or three things. The first is everybody who's ever, I think, been successful knows there is a mentorship that we all have to go through, right? And I was super lucky. You know, if some of your listeners are interested in design thinking, I'm the last doctoral student of Rudolf Arnheim who wrote the book Art and Visual Perception in 1948. I was his last doctoral student. I was so lucky to be mentored, but being mentored is not the normal thing. Being mentored is what I call so do two, See one, do one, teach one. So you have to start out by watching the master and how the master deals with conflict, right? Then you have to participate in the conflict, right? This is how you learn to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. You know, you follow a doctor around for, you know, four years and then you become a resident. And then eventually over time you develop expertise and you mentor somebody. So the first thing you have to do is you have to learn the trade. And I think it's something a lot of young people don't do anymore. I did a really wonderful program recently with Twyla Tharp, the great Broadway, you know, choreographer, and her big criticism of millennials was that they weren't mentored properly and they really didn't develop those deep skills, right? And part of deep skills is it brings confidence. The second thing is surround yourself with the other. You know, the people that I listen to are people who have a lot of ideas about how bad my ideas are on a regular basis. In fact, one of my closest friends is extremely the opposite of me, but I know he loves me. He built one of the largest corporations in America in the 1980s and 90s, right? A very successful man. And, you know, he's an older gentleman, but he always points out everything I'm doing is wrong. But because I know he loves me and I, because I know he absolutely has my best interests at heart and he's brilliant, I listen to him because that's my blind spot, my dominant logic. So I'm in a situation where I'm dealing with the A team that doesn't agree with me and it moves my thinking. I want you to have your listeners think about this for a minute. The University of Chicago, that economics building, Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard them talk about each other? 89 Nobel prize winners, (laughs) 89, right? You're in Chicago. You know what I'm talking about, but do they all agree? No, (laughs) but boy, tell me there's a better team on the planet than that team right now. Okay. Maybe Cambridge or Harvard or Stanford have something to say about it. So that's the second piece. The third piece, which I think is the most important is leave room for the stuff you don't know. When did we all become experts at stuff? I get this all the time. You know, I have this NPR radio program and I write a column for Inc. and all this stuff. And one of the things I get is this is the way the world's supposed to work. And I'm an authority because I have a voice. Can you imagine asking all your Facebook friends how to do a root canal, Pete? (laughs) Right? You'd get a really bad idea right? And you'd probably seriously injure yourself. What you need to do is talk to people who actually have done this and be open-minded about it, right? And say, oh, I'm probably wrong. You know, so I'm always amazed at how everybody believes that they're a military strategist or, you know, an expert on monetary policy. I was for a while an advisor to the Federal Reserve in '05 and '06, trying to figure out how to build an innovation engine, right? And one of the funny things was I'd get all of these people give me all this advice. And I'd say, what do you do? Uh, you know, I'm a medical doctor. I'm a lawyer. (laughs) You just, you just laugh. You go, what do you know about this? (laughs) You know, I don't know anything about being a lawyer or being a doctor. I would ask you right? You understand this is what I would do to engage it, to take the edge off of it. And I guess the biggest thing is, you know, hate doesn't get us anywhere. And this dominant logic where all we're fed is all the crap, you know, the people who love all the stuff you do are probably not very helpful.
0: Hmm. That may very well be the quote we feature for this episode. Thank you, that's good. And so, well, before we kind of wrap it up with your favorite things, I'd love to check in and say, are there any sort of key you know, tips or tricks or tactics or scripts or it's sort of like you know, bite-sized tidbits that folks who want to jumpstart their innovation or ideation in a hurry might glom onto right here?
1: Yeah, I think there's a number of them. Let me give you just a few to get you started. First of all, most of the creative work your company's trying to do, you probably have to do outside of the company. You have to start it there. So get familiar with the coffee shop, right? right. Get familiar with the place across the street and be brave enough to talk a little treason, if you will, right? The second thing, which is really important, don't try to stop failure from happening. God bless, you know, Tom Peters, who I love, but this isn't an amateur sport. What you're trying to do is accelerate failure. So I want you to think about whether you're, you know, if I asked all your listeners to take out a piece of paper and draw a picture of their spouse, you could pretty much tell at what age everybody stopped learning to draw, <laughs> right? Speak a foreign language, play an instrument, doesn't matter whether you're eight or 80. So the real question becomes, How are you accelerating the failure cycle in a way that everybody can't see it, right? Mm -hmm. Let me give you a couple other tidbits. One, hide inside Trojan Horses. Every organization has a politically correct project. It's got money, guns, and lawyers, and everybody loves it. Take your little project, you know, your little insurrection, and hide it inside of that because it'll get momentum. And people won't know that you're hiding inside. And I'm sure your listeners are going, but that's kind of cheating. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you want to win, don't you? Forget the 80-20 rule.
0: You just blasphemed.
1: <laughs> yeah, forget it. I know he was on. I know Alan was on. <laughs> Remember the twenty-eighty rule. I want you to think about that bell curve. It's easier to change 20% of your organization, 80%, than it is to change 80% of your organization, 20%. You just got to find the part that's in a crisis, Or the part that's on a roll, right? And finally, the biggest thing that I think everybody has to do is if you really want to make innovation happen, stop thinking big and start thinking fast. The key is momentum. You know, the biggest problem with innovation is people gather too much data and they get stuck in the planning cycle. Have you been to the meeting about the meeting, Pete? No. Oh, yes. Have you seen the report about the report? Oh, no
0: consulting. Let's think about how we're going to think about this and talk about how yeah. we're going to talk about this.
1: <laughs> even if you start the wrong direction, you're going to make adjustments. It's all about adjustments. And innovation's an infinite game. You never get there. Version one, version two, version three, version four. It's iterative. So the notion is we spend way too much time thinking about it, and not nearly enough time testing it. So that proof of concept, getting momentum on the proof of concept, I just think that's so important. And it's really hard getting people to do that. The people who really get how to do this are the, when you talk to the old entrepreneurs who built the company, and now their company's at that bulge bracket, and they're trying to get it to the next level, they remember, right? And they're brilliant at it. You just gotta really encourage them to do it.
0: Oh, Jeff, this has been so so thrilling and insightful, great stuff. Tell me, is there anything else you wanna make sure you mention before we shift gears and quickly hear about a couple of your favorite things?
1: Well, I think the big thing is I have a massive open online course, tons of stuff, so you can help yourself. There's a lot of kind of how-to in the stuff that I do, but you have to have the right mindset. So if you go to jeffdegraff.com, all the stuff is free, no one will ever bother you. And this is sort of my gift to your listeners. This is for them.
0: Oh, this is excellent, thank you. Well, now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
1: Oh, my favorite, it's on my door here. It's from Schopenhauer. Every man takes the limits of his own field of vision for the limits of the world. Mm,
0: Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or piece of research?
1: Well, it was the stuff that I was talking about. My favorite piece is that when you start looking at innovation indexes, none of them have ever beaten the growth benchmark ever. And I think that that should tell you how valid a lot of the innovation work out there is. Yeah, thank
0: you. And how about a favorite book?
1: Well, I just read a book that, and I'm usually not this gushy about a book. It's called The Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters. And it's by a young woman named Emily Asfani Smith. And I just love it. It's about how positive scholarship, this whole field of positive organizational scholarship has led into this whole renaissance of meaning-making that we haven't seen maybe since, you know, Montaigne in the Middle Ages. And it's filled with research and brilliant insights. Love the book. And brilliantly written by such a young person. I'm envious in the best sense of the word.
0: Oh, great. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool, whether that's a product or service or app, something that helps you be awesome at your job?
1: Well, I love PowerPoint. And the reason I love PowerPoint, It's cinematic. I think people use PowerPoint all wrong. I don't like a lot of the advice for PowerPoint. PowerPoint's making a movie. It's a storyboard. And why I like it is I'm one of those people that starts out with a zillion ideas and I don't really know how they all go together. And in fact, this is kind of how some of my ideas came to be. So I think we should all learn to be plastic thinkers.
0: Mm, thank you. And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours that helps you flourish?
1: Well, one of the things that I have a personal practice is I take catnaps. <laughs> I know, yes. I run. I run every day. But I think what happens is I get to the point where I feel like I can't think creatively anymore. And I know some people meditate. I think that's a great habit. I just take these little, I have a little timer in my office and I have this cheap place I sleep on and I take these 18 minute naps. And when I get up, I just feel like I can think again.
0: I love the precision of 18 minutes. Can you unpack that a little bit for us?
1: Well, you know, there's a lot of research. I don't know about the research, but I think once you start sleeping for a long time, you go into an REM cycle and then it's hard to wake up. So if you sleep just a little bit, it's not quite meditation, but basically what you're doing is, you know, you're turning all that chemo electrical energy off for a while And I think what it does is it resets your neural net. I I have a friend I'm writing an article with studies creativity in the brain. We'd have to turn to him to tell us what the exact mechanisms are. But, you know, you could pretty much steal 18 minutes on an airplane or 18 minutes, even if you're doing a gig somewhere, you know, just in a chair for a while.
0: Oh, that's good. Thank you. And how about a favorite resident nugget? Something that you share in terms of your books, they get Kindle highlighted or they get retweeted or note taken. Just something that you have said that has really struck a chord with people.
1: Well, I think the big thing is how you innovate is what you innovate. How you do something determines what you're going to get, right? And I think the other insight I would just add, I know you didn't ask me this, is just innovation is the product of constructive conflict. You can't have innovation without conflict.
0: Okay. Thank you. And the best place for folks to learn more or get in touch, would that be the jeffdegraff.com with the MOOC and Yeah,
1: I would just go there because I'm one of the original LinkedIn influencers, all that stuff's there. I think it's just easier to start there and then figure out what you want to do from there.
0: (laughs) Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks looking to be more awesome at their jobs?
1: Yes, I do. I think we all have a responsibility to become free and independent thinkers. I'm terribly worried that what's happened is we're all listening to the same people and we're not listening to disconfirming views. And my goal in life is the democratization of innovation. And the only way we're gonna get there is we have to go back to being free and independent thinkers, which means don't let people walk in your clean mind with their dirty feet, including me. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you.
0: Well, Jeff, this has been just a thrill. Thank you and good luck and keep on innovating. Thanks, Pete. It was so interesting for me having him talk through those four archetypes. Meanwhile, in the background, I am doing one-on-one coaching for these executives at one of the world's major beverage companies. And they're talking about how they want innovation and new stuff while we're discussing Myers-Briggs types and an ideal adaptation approaches. So it's the real deal. It shows up all the time. And it just underscored that how some folks are quick to short circuit others who are running their brain differently, like, no, that doesn't jive with this. But the more that you can sit in and make good use of that creative tension, sure enough, the more great ideas surface and actually become workable. So good stuff from Dr. DeGraff. If you'd like to check out, again, the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we reference, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F145. And I recommend you push the subscribe button so you'll catch folks like our next guest. It's Barbara Oakley. She has the claim to fame of creating the most attended course in human history, which is pretty cool. And she has some wisdom when it comes to shifting your mind, to break it through obstacles, learning new things that maybe you thought just weren't even in your purview. So I hope to catch you then and peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.